The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host Naomi Baratera and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programming that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. This week we are continuing our celebration of the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death with a talking about opera lecture devoted to Verdi's operatic setting of Shakespeare's play Macbeth. This particular talking about opera recording is somewhat special as it has never before been released to the public. So many of our talking about opera lectures that we feature here on the podcast were once released as cassettes or on CD, but this particular one was recorded but just never made it to print, so to speak. In an effort to keep our episodes manageable and appealing to a wide audience, we are typically trying to limit their duration to an hour or less. That being said, there is so much great information and wonderful musical examples included in this talking about opera recording that we've decided to split it into two parts rather than try and cut down all the information to fit under an hour. So for those of you who are subscribed to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast and get the automatic downloads of each episode, we are releasing this episode one day early on a Tuesday, and you can look for the second part of the episode to be released on Thursday, June 30th, 2016. If you are listening in the future, then you can already access both part one and part two in our episode feed. We hope you'll like this format and we would love to hear any feedback that you may have and you can send us feedback either by leaving a review in iTunes or you can shoot us an email at lectures at operaed.org. Now without any further delay, I'm happy to present Albert Inarato giving a talking about opera lecture on Verdi's Macbeth heard by the public for the very first time. One commonplace view of Giuseppe Verdi, say into the 1970s, was that he was the hick among great composers, that he was a prolific tunesmith who turned into an eminence in his old age with Otello and Falstaff in the 1880s. German and Anglo-Saxon commentators felt he alone, of all opera composers, had somehow done justice to William Shakespeare, with the help of the Italian poetry of Arrigo Boito, who adapted those works. Only in the 1930s in Germany had there been a realization that there was a third Shakespeare opera, one that owed nothing at all to Boito or to the wisdom of old age. That was Macbeth. There were various productions through the 40s into the 50s. One was with Maria Callas at La Scala in 1952. There were at least two presentations in New York, but the biggest hit was at the Metropolitan Opera in 1959 with Leonard Warren and Leonie Riesenek. They made the first recording, and gradually Macbeth became a repertory staple. This is Albert Inarato, and I'm talking about Macbeth for the Metropolitan Opera Guild. The Verdi of Macbeth was 33, and had written some eight operas, including Nabucco and Ernani. 
He started work on Macbeth with one of his standard librettists, Franco Maria Piave, and the work was mostly in a form typical of serious operas at that time. There were some exceptions to the rule. Cavaliere Andrea Maffei reduced the play to a singable format and provided some lyrics, for which, perhaps predictably enough, poor Piave was blamed. Later, Verdi was to apologize to him for that. Maffei was one of a circle of intellectuals who became important in Verdi's social life at this time. He was a brilliant man, obsessed with Shakespeare. In fact, some years later, he'd made a translation of the play Macbeth into Italian. And he also aspired to be a librettist. He wrote the text for Verdi's London commission, I Masnadieri, based on a Schiller play. The Verdi that Maffei knew was often depressed. In 1846, he wrote that he would give up the theater in a year at most. Verdi worked under terrific pressure, and the life of an opera composer was very hard. Librettos were vetted closely by censors in the Catholic Church. Verdi and all the other Italian composers suffered greatly from the interference of censors who could derail a project that was already well underway. Singers were usually engaged before much music was written, and they determined the kind of music that would be written. Then as now, the stars, the people who could guarantee box office, were both busy and choosy, and sometimes made difficult demands. Operas were nearly always given in two parts. If the show was in four acts, two acts were performed without pause, and scene changes had to be limited to what could be accomplished with backdrops and wings that could be raised and changed to reveal scenes preset deeper on the stage. So no matter what, the libretto had to be constructed with that in mind. Finally, the music was written very fast, often in four weeks or less. The composer often consulted with the singers about how passages should be written for them. Verdi did that with the baritone Felice Varesi, the first Macbeth, not wanting to complete a number Varesi would refuse to sing. The orchestration was done at the last minute, frequently in a week. Under the circumstances, a musically ambitious composer like Verdi could expect enormous frustrations and had to compromise often. He had had enough by the early 1840s and had made a good deal of money. But that was another issue for composers. The fees paid them very often for what turned into nerve-wracking and literally back-breaking work were as low as the publishers could get them. The fancy accounting movie studios still use to rob royalty participants in successful movies are nothing new. In fact, a study of Italian practice in the 1840s might give them some new ideas. Moreover, there was no copyright law in effect. Popular works were inevitably pirated. Maffei may have played a part in keeping Verdi in the game. The idea of doing a Shakespeare opera was a radical one. No play by Shakespeare had been produced in Italy in a public theater until Othello was given in Milan in 1842. Though it featured a great stage star of the time, it was laughed off the stage. The performance was not finished and the troupe disbanded. Yet Verdi had read Shakespeare since he was a young man. He loved the plays. One of his greatest ambitions, and one that he kept throughout his life, was to compose a King Lear. Sketches for possible scenes in such an opera have been found from every period of Verdi's professional life. His doubts about the complexity of the play and its many scenes seem to have stopped him from actually composing a complete opera. Verdi was quick to see the operatic dimensions of Macbeth. 
The producer in Florence, whose name was Lanari, wanted the supernatural apparitions and magic. He probably didn't expect Verdi to use this expectation as yet another reason to set Macbeth, but it worked out that way. Still, getting a libretto was hard. Piave wasn't fast enough, and he tended to use too many words in his lines. Verdi was often brutal with Piave, writing him about the witch's scene and joining him to use poche parole, poche parole, stile conciso. Few words, few words, a concise style. In Verdi's letter, he wrote the Italian words in huge capitals, meaning to be insulting. Piave had some understandable trouble adapting the story. There was no romance, the stars played villains, there was no leading tenor role, and the hero, Macduff, had to be a small part, a very confusing setup for a librettist of the time. But Verdi wanted some changes to Shakespeare. For example, in the play, Macbeth keeps his order for Banquo to be murdered from his wife. But Verdi wanted Lady Macbeth to urge her husband to this murder. This actually makes her more important in the opera than she is in the play. A true villain, as bad as her husband. But Piave had a hard time imagining how she would persuade her husband to this new deed, and in any case, there was no pleasing Verdi, who wound up sending Piave the words he wanted in the scene between them. Since Piave, as the librettist, would serve as a stage director, he had to design his libretto along whatever lines the theater wanted. He was informed there could be no dancing, since the opera would be given in Lent. Verdi was enraged. He wanted the witches to dance in a march of ghostly apparitions, and he wasn't going to take no for an answer. He put Piave in an awkward position and blamed him at the same time when he dithered. Piave struggled until the end of the libretto and then was fired. Verdi sent him a brutal letter, removed his name from the title page, and forbade him to print a preface, usually an honor reserved by the librettist. Instead, Verdi turned to Sant'Andrea, as he referred to Maffei, who was there to rescue the project. The second witch's chorus and the sleepwalking scene were entirely rewritten by Maffei. He also made other changes in the text. Verdi gave Maffei a gold watch. He sent Piave his fee, but wrote, I wouldn't have your drama for all the gold in the world. Strangely enough, the two made up, and worked together many times again. Verdi worked on Macbeth longer than usual. In January 1847, about a month before rehearsals, he had scenes to send to Varese, the first Macbeth, and Mariana Barbierinini, the first Lady Macbeth. Some of this was to test their willingness to sing in a style he thought was different from what they usually had to sing, but also to give them notice that he expected a very high level of preparation and cooperation from them. To Varese, he wrote, I will never stop urging you to study the dramatic situation and the words. The music will come by itself. I would be happier if you serve the poet more than the composer. He wrote along similar lines to Barbierinini, emphasizing that he expected her to use her great talents to create something wholly original in Italy and far more in keeping with the play. Though, to a reader of the play, the liberties taken by Maffei, Verdi, and where they couldn't avoid his work, Piave, would be obvious, Verdi meant Shakespeare by the poet. In his mind, he was being true to the creator's impulse in this play. Both practicalities and his own needs would change elements of Shakespeare's narrative, but Verdi never doubted that in some higher sense he was being true to the bard. 
He went to Florence with his devoted assistant, Emanuele Muzio, and soon accumulated a large entourage there of fans from Milan. Among those who spread word of this new opera with the idea that it would be spectacularly original yet successful was Giuseppina Streponi, Verdi's mistress, though that arrangement was somewhat long-distance and occasional at this point. And of course, she was the woman he eventually married many years, and it must be said, many tears later. Straponi had helped Verdi with his first hit, Nabucco, and though her own career as a soprano slipped very quickly from stardom to impresarios doing her favors as she hoarsely and sometimes voicelessly performed her old repertory to an increasingly bad press, her sharpness and sophistication of mind were invaluable to Verdi, and perhaps her belief was too. He was by no means an insecure artist. Yet he needed to be reassured in his unceasing attempts to depart from the safe and surefire conventions of Italian opera in this period. It was also Streponi who supported his intention to move to Paris, the cultural center of the world of that time. It was she who felt he could compete there, where standards were higher than they were in Italy, and who thought that whatever its fate might be in Florence, Macbeth was a perfect work for Paris. Though it would take 18 years to happen, her instinct was to be put to the test. In Florence, there was no question that Verdi was a celebrity. Six of his operas had been produced there between 1843 and 1846. The city had also seen two of the high points of modernism, as it was then understood, Weber's Der Freischutz and Meyerbeer's Robert le Diable. Music culture in general was high in the city, and there was a large anti-Verdi faction who thought his works were crude. The enemies hardly needed excuses to defame Verdi, but he gave them some anyway. Since Piave had been banished, Verdi himself directed. His behavior with the theater management and at rehearsals was intensely demanding and often rough. He was not kind to the people working for him, and in a time without unions, his demands for extra time from all concerned resulted in an exhausted and impatient company. Barbieri Nini remembered that the composer rehearsed the whispered duet between Macbeth and his lady after King Duncan has been killed by Macbeth 150 times. The last one, out in the theater lobby, right before they went on stage to perform it at the world premiere. She mentioned that the baritone Varese was so angry about this that he almost drew his prop sword on Verdi, who wasn't in the least phased. The anti-Verdians thought him an arrogant monster, and they resented the pro-Verdi propaganda that Verdi was an original. The enemies thought him the enemy of things Italian. Even a neutral party who liked Verdi, the poet Giusti, only 37 at this time, warned him, as indeed he was to be warned by Italians throughout his career, not to go away from the history, the traditions, and the literature of Italy. Giusti called Verdi's love of non-Italian subjects whoring after foreign influences. For all the usual and even unusual nerves, the first night was a huge success. Verdi was said to have taken 30 curtain calls. The music was interrupted often by ovations, and the sleepwalking scene was received with near hysteria. For the first time, Barbieri Nini saw the human side of Verdi. He was so moved by her performance and so grateful for her work that he cried in her dressing room, then left without a word. 
The printed reviews were mixed, and some infuriated the composer. But it made no difference to the public, who crowded the opera house and often demanded the composer take bows long after this was expected. In one instance, Muzio tricked Verdi into coming into the theater so that their friends in the audience could spread the word. The show was stopped, and Verdi was presented with a gold crown inscribed from the Florentines to G. Verdi. Italian operas usually became orphans rather quickly. They were allowed to go on their way after the world premiere, and changes by other hands were more or less accepted, though sometimes with bitter complaints. But this did not happen with Macbeth. For one thing, for the first time in his life, Verdi secured a very high fee from his publisher, Ricordi, a higher fee than any paid Vincenzo Bellini, who had been the highest paid Italian composer until that time. That gave Ricordi the incentive to see that the work was respected when performed. Secondly, Verdi kept himself carefully informed about the history of the opera. It was one of the few operas of his that he was willing to direct in revival. When the opera was to be given in Naples, he was disturbed by the casting of a star soprano named Eugenia Tadulini. He wrote a letter to the director of this production, and it has always been among the most quoted of Verdi's letters, quoted cynically sometimes, as though to excuse in advance a Lady Macbeth who would not sing easily or attractively. He wrote, Tadulini is a fine figure of a woman and I would like Lady Macbeth to look ugly and malignant. Tadellini sings to perfection, and I would rather that Lady didn't sing at all. Tadellini has a marvelous voice, and I would rather that Lady's voice were rough, hollow, stifled. Point out that the chief pieces of the opera are two, the duet between Lady Macbeth and her husband, and the sleepwalking scene. And these pieces must not be sung at all, they must be acted and declaimed in a voice that is hollow and veiled. Without this, the whole effect is lost. Scholars have on the whole thought Verdi was exaggerating greatly, even to excess. For one thing, in this first version of the opera, which we will not be hearing, there are arias and cabalettas for Lady Macbeth that are of the utmost difficulty and require great virtuosity. The sleepwalking scene is only one part and a short one of a very difficult role, and anybody casting the part would have been looking for someone with the gifts of a star. Though it's possible that Verdi simply didn't like Tadellini and was trying very diplomatically to get her fired, the usual interpretation of the letter is that Verdi was insistent that Macbeth was, and this was a new term especially in Italy, a music drama that its effect was not in the success of individual arias or even in rousing patriotic choruses, though the grieving chorus of exiles and the final chorus of jubilation that their country is now restored allowed Macbeth to join other Verdi operas that had a huge vogue during the Italian rebellion called the Risorgimento. But Verdi again insisted that this was not important, not the soul of the opera. That was in the fusing of music with dramatic responsibility, a higher degree of dedication to what Verdi saw as the truth in the work of the world's greatest dramatic poet. There is a certain knee-jerk assumption that Verdi's revision for Paris must be better than the 1847 original. But while Verdi had almost a generation's worth of experience to add, the Paris version is actually more of a mixed bag than the first version. Everything fits in 1847. 
Everything belongs. Some of it is crude, as Verdi's earlier works are all occasionally crude, but there is a clear charting of effect that actually works well, even better than the Paris version. Verdi faced another cultural fact in Paris. The French capital was at its height as a center of the new music. The sophistication of audiences was very high. Music that was hard to come by elsewhere, works by Beethoven, for example, by Weber, by Berlioz, were commonplace in the City of Light. Everybody had heard the works of Frédéric Chopin, tuneful and virtuosic, yes, but fantastically accomplished and original harmonically. The darling of Paris, Franz Liszt, played challenging concerts of music that forced the audience to think and try to rehear the new pieces. Moreover, everyone knew Mendelssohn's fairy music, up to that time the most imaginative and convincing depiction of the supernatural in music. There was also the Wolf's Glen scene in Weber's Freischutz, where the evil side of the supernatural is palpable. Verdi would not only match, but even surpass, these great composers in the magical music of Windsor Forest at night in Falstaff. But in Paris in 1865, his music for the witches and the ghostly apparitions of kings descended from Banquo seemed simple-minded. Under the circumstances, Verdi's work seemed somehow formulaic, though it wasn't by Italian standards, or indeed by any but Parisian standards. In any event, a case can be made for Verdi's original creation, and perhaps that day will come. For now, only the Paris edition is given. Verdi was approached by the Paris Opera in 1852 for a new opera. He tried to combine that with a mounting of Macbeth, promising the extended ballet Paris demanded. But the opera declined. For some years following, Verdi was in bad odor with the Paris Opera. He had managed to have a horrific fight with the orchestra during a rehearsal of Le Vespre Sicilienne, better known today as I Vespri Siciliani. Uh, not only had the composer offended every musician, but he had stormed out, refusing ever to set foot in the theater again. It was the impresario of the Teatro Lyrique, Carvalho, who approached Verdi about Macbeth. He had already mounted a very brave but very truncated version of Berlioz's masterpiece Le Troyen, the most that composer was ever to hear of his opera. It was an extraordinary risk for an impresario of a small theater to take. On the other hand, Carvalho was not entirely to be trusted and did not always act with artistic probity. He had actually driven Berlioz crazy. And Verdi was only spared because, still furious at the Paris Opera, he was refusing to travel to the city. He worked through his French publisher, Escudier. Verdi found going back to Macbeth was not rewarding. He was a little let down by the actual prospect of the work, which began to seem more extensive than he at first envisioned. But after all, he was a different composer, far more sophisticated, and it was hard to patch up a work that was so much a part of his youth. He called the result a mosaic in music, something he said he despised. The first problem was the ballet. He wasn't sure just what it should be, and he didn't want an elaborate choreographic event. Eventually, he settled on a fairly brief divertissement where the goddess Hecate appears and has mime. Hecate is still the goddess of witchcraft and in ancient times was called the goddess of ghosts, so given that her mime will lead to the parade of ghosts from the future, the rightful kings of Scotland, the sight of whom terrifies Macbeth, that seems appropriate. He used a bass clarinet in unison with cellos and bassoon to give her appearance a spooky quality. 
A little later, he wrote for a small wind band to be placed under the stage to accompany the procession of ghost kings. Otherwise, it was a patchwork. At the end of the second witch's scenes, he substituted a duet for Macbeth and his lady for the aria Macbeth sang in the first version. He did away with Macbeth's death aria, though sometimes it is reinserted in productions of our day, just as the ballet is usually cut. He felt the scene with Banquo's ghost lacked something in the score, and he sent staging suggestions to Escudier, hoping to avoid awkwardness. And finally, he wrote a fugue to complete the opera. Verdi made other small adjustments in orchestration while, of course, fighting with Carvalho, who was not always cooperative. He chose his own translators rather than the man Verdi wanted, and he made suggestions to Verdi for changes that the composer roundly rejected. Verdi realized, as Berlioz had, that Carvalho was not at all trustworthy. Still, the new version opened in Paris on the 19th of April, 1865. It was a failure, which surprised Verdi, who wrote, I thought I had done quite well with it. It appears I was mistaken. In fact, it took until the 20th century for the hybrid work to gain acceptance. Of course, Italian critics in the 1980s and 90s started to insist that the hybrid Macbeth was Verdi's greatest Shakespearean opera. It was sort of the same impulse that led the conductor Gavazzini to insist that Il Trovatore was the Italian St. Matthew Passion. But a better observation is perhaps the one that Verdi had a remarkable affinity for drama that was Shakespearean in scope. Even some of the Spanish tragedies he set, like Trovatore and La Forza del Destino, have something Shakespearean in their gestures toward a kind of elevated tragedy. And sometimes there is a character that is almost Shakespearean in complexity. Azucena, perhaps, certainly the magnificently drawn Don Alvaro of Forza. Verdi was deeply attracted to Shakespeare's complexity of vision about human character. Macbeth is a good, honorable, and brave man to start with. The ease with which he is corrupted, and the fact that that corruption has no end except in his death, is a profound and pessimistic view of humanity. It was a view Verdi shared. It's interesting that Verdi almost felt the same kind of empathy for Lady Macbeth, the part in the play is important, but she is hardly Shakespeare's greatest female character. Verdi, on the other hand, had already explored a woman filled with venom and violence, Abigaile in his first great success, Nabucco. And he saw to it that lady, as he called her, is a powerful presence in the opera and finally a pathetic one. Whoever Shakespeare was, whether he was the boy from Stratford who became an actor and then very quickly morphed into perhaps the greatest poet in English, or whether he was someone else using that Shakespeare as a front, he could not take the easy way out with his characters. Both Macbeths sin and suffer, and death is no kinder for them than for their victims, rather the opposite. Verdi had some of the same psychology. Though other composers might use greater virtuosity to create nightmarish states of being, Verdi's rightness of touch in presenting these two fascinating but awful people remains remarkable. The prelude to the Paris Macbeth is in several sections. It starts with figures that are identified with the witches. Our recording was conducted by Riccardo Muti.
The scratching sound comes from some of the witch's words in the play. Thrice the brinded calf hath mewed, and it ends on an eerie dissonance, a minor ninth. This is followed by music associated with the apparitions in Act Three, and figures we'll hear at the start of the sleepwalking scene. All of this is unusual and must have seemed so even in Paris. However, the prelude ends with a big tune that sounds a lot like Donizetti. The short, stormy continuation of this is one of many moments in the score that suggests the influence on Verdi of Beethoven. Act One starts with music that establishes the battle that is being fought offstage and the victory won by two of King Duncan's generals, Macbeth and Banquo. Witches gather. In the play, there are only three weird sisters, but in an opera, we are talking about a chorus. It is divided into three parts, three covens. They know they are there to meet the victorious Macbeth and to set a wicked plot in motion. The music for the witches has usually been criticized as silly. Though for short stretches, Verdi writes interestingly, that usually gives way to a big tune, like this one, where the witches celebrate their evil. Macbeth, baritone, and Banquo, bass, enter, speaking of the glorious day of victory they've just had. They are shocked to see the hideous creatures in front of them. They might be women, save for their beards, observes Banquo. The witches greet Macbeth, chanting a title. One they hail him as a Thane of Glams, his current title. Then they prophesize he will be Thane of Cawdor, and third, he will be King of Scotland. The two men are shocked. Banquo demands prophecies for himself. The witch's answers are paradoxical, but end by saying he will be father of kings. Then, ironically hailing both men, the witches vanish. The generals are amazed. But soon a group of men enter, acclaiming Macbeth Thane of Cawdor. He still lives, says Macbeth. Not so. He died in battle, and the king has immediately appointed Macbeth the new thane. Ah, cries Banquo, the devil speaks true. 
This proclamation leads to a fine ensemble started by Macbeth. Due vaticini compiuti or sono. Two prophecies are now fulfilled, but what about the third, that I am to be king? I dare not raise my hand to that. In the background, Banco can only wonder at what he sees as sinister, and the men in the chorus are shocked that neither general seems surprised. Macbeth and Banquo are sung by Cheryl Milnes and Ruggero Ramondi. The witches reappear. They all meet again, as they prophesize, when Macbeth comes calling. Scene two of the act reflects Act One, Scene Five of Shakespeare's play, which is actually close to what often happens in Italian opera. It even has a messenger. In the opera, after a powerful introduction, which summons up Beethoven again, Lady Macbeth enters reading a letter from her husband. It's a unique entrance for a character in this time and immediately establishes the newness of Verdi's dramaturgy in the opera. The letter tells her of the accuracy of the witch's prediction, and when she starts to sing, she dwells on the idea of ascending the throne. Macbeth has an ambitious spirit, but has need of her. She then has her first aria, Vieni ta fretta. It's based on the Shakespearean lines, Hide thee hither that I may pour my spirit in thine ear. The manner of this aria summons up Abigaile from Nabucco, with its wide leaps and wild trills low in the voice, but it's one of the hardest arias in Verdi. For one thing, the line keeps rising higher and higher, just as Lady Macbeth's ambitions do. Fiorenza Cossotto sings Lady Macbeth. Oh. 
messenger enters. King Duncan Duncano in the opera will be here at nightfall, accompanying Macbeth. He will be received as befits a king, says Lady Macbeth. But of course, she means with daggers drawn. For this killer cabaleta, Verdi once again shows Shakespeare's lines. Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here. Lady Macbeth conjures evil so that no kind of caring feelings will derail her purpose. Or tutte sorgete, ministri infernali. All of you spirits of hell, arise now. This is the end of the aria, where one gets a sense of the fierceness of Lady Macbeth's spirit and of her enormous determination. Macbeth arrives, and his lady loses little time in suggesting that the tomorrow, when a living King Duncan is supposed to leave, must never come. He is taken aback, but understands her. To see what Verdi meant by music drama at the time, Lady Macbeth gets an extravagant vocal flourish in the middle of a recitative. Here she tells her husband they must be very calm when they meet the king. Her utterance is followed by a band offstage playing a march to which the king's entourage enters. The march has often been criticized as too vulgar, but it serves for the dumb show Verdi indicates. The king is greeted by the Macbeths and then escorted by them to his room for the night. He is not a singing part. The stage is empty only for a moment. Macbeth re-enters with a servant. Mysteriously, he commands the servant to tell his wife to sound a bell when it is time. That, of course, will be the signal that Duncan has retired for the night and can be easily killed. Suddenly, as in Shakespeare, Macbeth imagines he sees a dagger in front of him. It looks so real, but he cannot grasp it. It seems to be leading him toward Duncan, and suddenly he sees blood on it. It is from evil and the power of witches. The text reflects Shakespeare's lines, 
Now o'er the one-half-world nature seems dead, and wicked dreams abuse the curtain sleep. This is orchestrated with remarkable imagination, and the entire declamation is set with immense skill. Verdi was not to match it again until Parisiamo in Rigoletto. The bell is the signal, and Macbeth moves off to kill the king. Lady Macbeth enters nervously. She hears her husband cry out off stage and fears he has been caught or has revealed himself. But soon he enters. The deed has been done. This is the duet that Verdi rehearsed so much with some emendations for Paris. Though it starts in whispers, there is a lyrical expansion. After Macbeth tells his wife that he heard one of Duncan's guards cry, God help us in his sleep, to which the other replied, Amen. Macbeth would also have uttered Amen, but the word would not come. Verdi uses Shakespeare's words, Methought I heard a voice cry, Sleep no more. Macbeth does murder sleep. Glums has murdered sleep, and therefore Caldor shall sleep no more. Folia, folia, exclaims the lady. This is madness. For a moment, the forward action stops for an operatic expansion. This one memorably built on Shakespeare. Duncan's virtues will plead like angels' trumpet tongues against the deep damnation of his taking off. Lady Macbeth tells him to go back in with the bloody daggers and smear the blood on the sleeping guards so they will be blamed for the murder. Macbeth refuses, and she contemptuously takes the daggers from him. Macbeth looks at his blood-stained hands and, as in Shakespeare, asks, Will all great Neptune's oceans wash this blood from my hand? 
Lady Macbeth returns, having left the daggers in the king's room. Her own hands are covered in blood, but she assures him that a little water will cleanse us of this deed. There has been a fearful knocking at the door. Lady Macbeth realizes she must get her husband away and into his bedclothes. She urges him off. At this point in Shakespeare, of course, there occurs the porter scene with its ghoulish humor. In Verdi, though, Banquo and Macduff enter. Macduff goes off to check on the king, while Banquo ponders the evil omens that have been seen and heard this night. Suddenly, Macduff comes running on in horror. He can't bear to speak of what has happened. Banquo rushes off to see for himself as Macduff rouses the castle. Everyone assembles, asking what is going on. Banquo returns to announce that the king has been killed. This builds into a big ensemble capped by one of those tunes so redolent of early Verdi. Are going to wrap things up for part one of episode 38 so in just two days we will be back with you presenting part two of this episode and it will pick up right where we left off with albert and arato taking us through the rest of the opera and giving us more interesting insights into this wonderful work until then i'm your host naomi baratera and thank you for listening